Well, good morning. It's good to be here with you. If we haven't met before, my name is Kyle Denny. I'm the youth pastor here as well as the director of finance. If you got Jeff's email yesterday, then you would have seen the note from Pastor Mark just letting us know that he's going to take some extended time off in July. That is purposeful. That is planned. That is strategic. We want Mark for the long haul. We don't want him to get burned out. Uh, so you're stuck with me today. So we're going to be in 2 Peter chapter 1. If you have a Bible and want to flip there, you can. Otherwise, we'll put the verses on the screen. I should have said, if you're not getting those emails from Pastor Jeff or from New Hope at all, and you want to be, you can fill out a Connect card. They're in the pews around you, and you can put it in the back offering. If you're live streaming with us, welcome. Glad you're viewing that way. You can go through the website and get connected. Uh, but we, we really do try not to spam you guys or just dump a bunch of stuff on you. We try to keep you connected. So if you're not getting connected, let us know. We'd love to help. Second Peter chapter 1 is where we'll be. Since the 4th of July is coming up, I thought, let's start a story with George Washington, right? And so if you were to jump into time, into March of 1783, you would see that George Washington was having a very bad day. He had a mutiny on his hands that he was trying to deal with. You see, his troops, they were bloodied. They were worn out. They had gone through seasons of hunger and seasons of freezing temperatures. They were far from their homes. And on top of all that, they weren't getting paid. They had months of backlog or years of backlog of pay that was owed to them. And there is a speculation going around that the Continental Congress wasn't going to pay them. Meanwhile, they're looking at some of the other private citizens, and some of them are profiteering off the war. They are growing prosperous by staying out of the war, and it's like sitting on a powder keg, right? Like, this is going to blow, and that's exactly what happens. An anonymous pamphlet starts weaving through the camp, and the, camp, the pamphlet is calling people to arms. It's telling the soldiers that they should commit mutiny, because soon the Continental Congress, it's going to disband them, it's going to disperse them, and they're going to be forgotten, and they'll never get this chance again. Instead, they were encouraged to band together and force Congress to give them what is owed to them. And George Washington gets wind of this, and he's mortified. On one hand, his soldiers have a legitimate grievance. He has been petitioning the Congress for supplies and for resources for a long time. He knows that his soldiers should get paid what they are owed. But on the other hand, this type of disloyalty, the dishonorable way that they would go about this, that could destroy their whole country. It could ruin everything that they had fought for. And so when he hears of this group of hostile soldiers that are meeting together, he crashes the party. I love George Washington. Are, they aren't expecting him there, and he barges in. He goes up front, and he makes a speech. He talks about national duty. He talks about the submission of military to civil authority. He talked about his sincere affection he felt for the army. But a lot of historians would say that that wasn't what swayed his troops, that up to this point, it was falling on deaf ears. It wasn't until he brought out a letter from Congress and began to read it that things started to shift. You see, George Washington, with all the candlelight reading he was doing through the war, his eyesight had grown very poor. And in his private quarters, he would wear spectacles, but never in public. He cared about his image. He didn't want to be perceived a certain way. And so he kept that hidden from a lot of people. 
Well, when he started reading that letter, he couldn't read the words. He stumbled over the first two sentences, and he planned this. He, he reached into his pocket for those spectacles, and he softly said, gentlemen, you will permit me to put on my spectacles, for I have not only grown gray, but almost blind in the service of my country. And it hit his soldiers right in the gut. Like that made an impression to them. George Washington was able to dissolve the mutiny, not just because his soldiers had respect for him or admired him. Many point to the brilliance of the way that George Washington reminded them and showed him that he himself was a partaker of the war, that he was with his troops every step of the way, that the war personally cost him, and he was someone that was as equally vested as they were. He was able to speak to them about goodness and what was right. He dissuaded and dissolved the mutiny. Today, we are still drawn to beauty and goodness. George Washington's troops, they saw a reflection of it in their commander, but we still see reflections of it today. It's why we have platforms like GoFundMe. It's because there are certain situations, there are certain causes that resonate with us, that we want to participate in. The idea of being drawn into something to participate, that's going to be at the center of our passage today. We were made to be drawn to beauty and goodness, and we're going to look at what does that exactly mean. I'm going to read our passage out in front of us so we can get a lay of the land. This is 2 Peter chapter 1. It says, His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence, by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. The word of the Lord. There is so much goodness that is packed into these verses. But what we're going to be talking about specifically is that we see two doorways where God has something that he is going to grant us, that he's going to bestow upon us, but it's through a doorway. We have to enter through something else to get it. And this is not the price is right. There's two doorways, but you don't have to choose doorway one or doorway two. They're both very similar doorways, and they're meant to go together. And so we're, we're going to talk about that, but let me lay down some context first. Second Peter, as you might have guessed, is written by the Apostle Peter. And I love the Apostle Peter. Like, he had a ferocious love for Jesus in Jesus' earthly ministry. He was ultimately loyal to Jesus, cared about Jesus. And then he's also the kind of guy that will say what's on his mind. Like when there's a group of them around, they're all thinking the same thing, but Peter's the one that actually says it, right? And so he's very bold sometimes with what he says. Well, this is Peter who has been matured for 30 years. Jesus has been resurrected, and for 30 years, he's been one of the pillars of the church, He's been chewing on what Jesus has said. His spirit has been showing him things. And so now he is writing out to a different congregation. He, he's trying to help them. He says, Simeon Peter, a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ. That's how he starts the letter, but very early on he says, I think it right 
as long as I am in this body to stir you up by way of reminder, since I know that the putting off of my body will be soon. You see, Peter's going to die, and he knows that he's going to die soon. This letter takes place right before he gets executed by the Roman Emperor Nero, and it's, it's not a pleasant time in church history. It's either right before or right during when they would throw Christians to the beasts in the Colosseum to watch them get torn apart. They would throw Christians up on poles and light them on fire like night lights. There is an evil intensity with this persecution. And it's right around when Peter is writing. He's writing to confront false teachers and he's specifically writing about the knowledge of Jesus. He starts the letter off by saying, may grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God. That's at the beginning. And then at the end, he also writes, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord, Savior, Jesus Christ. So that's called an inclusio. He's bookending it at the beginning and at the end with something that's really important that he really wants to share, and it's knowledge of Jesus. We're going to see that in our verses today. But our passage begins with 2 Peter 1. It says, His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. Now, we see this word power used a lot in Jesus' earthly ministry in relation to miracles. It's the Greek word dynamis. So we get the story of a woman in the Synoptic Gospels that spends her life in misery. She has this discharge of blood, and no matter how much money she spends, no matter who she goes to see, she can't resist the disease. She can't get healed of it. She spent every dime that she has, and she ends up worse than she was before. Man can do nothing to help, but she hears about Jesus, and she knows, if I just touch his garment, I'm going to be made well. Her story picks up in Luke. It says, she came behind him and touched the fringe of his garment, and immediately her discharge of blood ceased, and Jesus said to her, who was it that touched me? When all denied it, Peter said, Master, the crowd surrounds you and are pressing in on you. But Jesus said, someone touched me, for I perceive that power, that dynamis, has gone out from me. Now hold on. Jesus is God. Why does he need to ask the question, who touched me? Like, shouldn't he already know that? I'm going to let you chew on that for a few minutes. We're going to come back to this story. But for now, I just want you to see that this healing is described as power. Power, dynamis, is that which overcomes resistance. There is ability, there is possibility, there is power to do what is desired. In the case of the woman with the discharge of blood, there is resistance to her getting well. No matter how much money she spends, no matter who she sees, she can't get rid of that disease. Man can do nothing against it, but just a belief, just a touch of Jesus' garment, and she's healed instantly. Power goes out of Jesus. Uh, a more mighty example of the power of God is displayed in Jesus' resurrection from the dead. It's not just that Jesus died for us, right? It's that he continues to live. There was a wrestling match with God and with death. And up until this point, death has been the greatest enemy that we have known. And yet it couldn't pin Jesus. It couldn't resist Jesus. 
Jesus conquers death. In his earthly ministry, before he dies on the cross, a group of religious leaders called Sadducees, they come and they try to convince Jesus that the resurrection is foolishness, that it doesn't make sense, that it's not possible to happen. And I love Jesus, because when he's confronting people, a lot of times he asks them a question, and he tries to get into their thought process. But I want you to see what he says here. In uh, Matthew, he says, you are wrong. He doesn't even give him a chance to explain. He's just like, you're wrong, because you neither know the scriptures nor the power, the dynamis of God. You see, God has the ability, he has the possibility, he has the power to do what he desires, no matter what that resistance is that he's butting up against. There's that Bible verse that says, with God, all things are possible, and that's because God has all power. There is nothing that resists God that he can't get through. And Peter says that that power And that's doing something for us. It says his divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. So God's power, it's given us access not just to some things, but to all things. Like that's a big difference. Imagine going into Home Depot and being given access to all things construction related right? Like you can go wherever you want. You can pick something off the shelf. You can carry it home, put it in your car whenever you want. Like if someone gave that to you for Father's Day or for Mother's Day, don't want to do any stereotypes here, but if someone gave that to you, how great of a gift would that be? Like how excited for that would you be? Recently, I had the chance to uh, sit down and hear about Cutco knives And the Cutco person was telling me about the paring knife and the butcher knife and the vegetable knife and about 50 other knives that I didn't even know existed, right? But for the very small 12 monthly payment of $700 a month, it's only $175 a week. For that small payment, I could have everything, right? I could have all things Cutco. God doesn't do that to us. He doesn't tack on a payment plan for us to have access to this. He freely gives it. We're talking about something of infinite more value. Home Depot tools are great. They're going to wear out. They always do. Cutco knives, those are awesome. Even with a lifetime guarantee, the company can still go out of business. If you are a believer, you have something of infinite more value. You're being given access to something that will never wear out. It will never be thrown away. It will never be useless. You have all things that pertain to life and godliness. When you're doing electrical work, you often need a wire nut. What the wire nut does is you put two wires up, you put the wire nut on, and you twist them together, and it becomes part of one line. Well, Peter is going to be using a wire nut on two words a couple of times in this passage, and he's going to twist these two words together. This is the first instance. This life and godliness, it's pointing to the same reality, 
They're twisting together to help tap into the same thing. When Jesus was in his earthly ministry, he was always talking about life. And Peter would remember that. Like Jesus promised that the Holy Spirit would help his apostles remember these types of things. Now there's two different words in the Greek language for life. There's bios and there's zoe. Bios talks more about physical life. It's about existence, if you will. There's food, there's clothing, there's air to breathe. You need those for existence. But this verse in 2 Peter is talking about zoe, and it's more the quality of life. It's about the absolute fullness of life. I think what's interesting about the way Jesus talks about life is it's not this continuation of what we already experience. He's come to offer us something brand new. It's a different, better quality. He says in John 10, the thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life, Zoe, and have it abundantly. Life is everything that your soul thirsts for. Like true life is a quality which we cannot know without Jesus. I like the way one modern day theologian put it. The late Tim Keller said, there is a big difference between existing, bios, and living, zoe. When the Bible talks about eternal life, nowhere does it simply mean that life goes on forever. That would be eternal existence, and that is the definition of hell. Do you want to know what hell is? Hell is eternal existence. The life we're talking about is that which makes life worth living, meaning, energy, exhilaration, and joy, that which gives you meaning in life. If you're a believer, you, you have access to all things that encompass true life, true meaning, true joy. Like the absolute fullness of life is available to you. Like that's way better than Home Depot, right? What an infinitely generous gift we've been given. Do you live like that though? Do you live like you have been given the utmost best and that you have access to it right now? You see, sometimes I forget that. I, I get stuck looking around me and thinking my life would be more worth living with better cars or better gadgets or better phones, right? And that's not true. Listen to what Jesus says. He said to them, take care and be on guard against all covetousness. For one's life, one's zoe, it does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. This life that we have access to, this zoe, it cannot be reduced to, it cannot be measured by, it cannot be satisfied by stuff. Jesus doesn't promise you a mansion in this life. He promises and gives you access to something better all things pertaining to meaning and worth and joy, the very things that stuff will never bring you. But remember, this is a wire nut. There's something else that's being twisted into this life, and it's the word godliness. Elsewhere, Jesus makes the claim that I am the way and the truth and the life, the zoe, 
And so if this is true, if we want true life, then ultimately we should begin to look like Jesus. Let me say it a different way. If Jesus is the life, then our ability to enjoy or to have this life means that we should begin to be like Jesus. That's at the center of this word, godliness. It's that our desires, our values, they are rooted in Jesus. And because our inside is rooted in Jesus, our outside, our actions, begin to look like Jesus as well. He's granted us not only the fullness of life, but the ability to drink it in and live it out. That's what's behind this life and godliness combo. That's what God's power grants to us. Like what is God's power in our life? It's when we turn from sin. His power is seen when you enjoy Jesus more than whatever sin was doing to you before. God's power overcomes resistance. It overcomes sin. It overcomes culture. Whatever's holding you back from looking like Jesus, God's power can overcome that. How? How does his power do this? I'm so glad you asked. It says the next part of the verse, through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence. It's through the knowledge of him. When I was in college, I studied some Italian, loved learning languages, loved Italian, and I had the chance to do a study abroad. And so for eight weeks, I was gonna be with a host family living in Italy, and they paired us up with another student for safety, and this student hadn't taken a lick of Italian, and he was a little nervous about it. And so I was calming him, and I'm like, don't worry, I've taken a year, like, I, we can at least get around, we'll be fine. And so that reassured him some. Well, the taxi cab dropped us off, we knocked on the door, and the lady opened the door very animated. Like, she comes, she gives us a big hug, she starts talking Italian very, very fast, she invites us in and she shows us around. And as she's showing us around, she's pointing to stuff, she's talking really fast, doesn't speak any English, and then she's waiting for us. And so I'm saying, see, 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 see. Ah, ah, mm-hmm, mm-hmm, grazie, grazie, right? And she's doing this throughout the whole house until we get up to our room and we shut the door. And when we shut the door, my roommate's just like, oh, man, I'm so glad you're here. I didn't know what she was saying. And I said, yeah, me neither. <laughs> and his voice just drops. He's like, what? He said, what do you mean you don't know what she was saying? I'm like, I, she was talking too fast. He's like, why were you saying see so many times then? And I'm like, well, I, I just kind of thought it'd be awkward if we just stared at her. And I thought it'd be embarrassing, okay? You see, I had a lot, that, that was probably not the wisest thing to do what I did. I had a lot of head knowledge of these words. Like I had book knowledge. I knew these words. I knew what they meant. I didn't have the experience to tie them to. She talked way too fast. Her dialect was way too strong. The way the Bible talks about knowledge of Jesus, it's not just book knowledge. That's important. Like we need factual knowledge, yes, but it's also the intimate knowledge, it's the personal, relational knowledge. It's something to be experienced, this knowledge of Jesus. In the Gospels, when that woman touches Jesus' garment, 
power goes out of Jesus. And Jesus doesn't just say, oh, good, someone's healed and I didn't even have to stop, right? Like, that's pretty efficient. No, no, no. He shuts everything down and he asks the question, who was it that touched me? And I imagine everyone taking a step back and being like, wasn't me, right? Like, everyone denies it. And you have my boy Peter telling it like it is. He says, Master, the crowd surrounds you and are pressing in on you. Basically, Jesus, everyone has touched you. It's thick in here. We are cramped in here. But Jesus said, someone touched me, for I perceive that power has gone out from me. And when the woman saw that she was not hidden, she came trembling and falling down before him, declared in the presence of all the people why she had touched him and how she had been immediately healed. And he said to her daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. This woman isn't hidden anymore. And so she comes forward. She falls to the ground, explains what happens. And all Jesus says is your faith has made you well. Like, like the context of this story, Jesus is on his way to an urgent mission. Like there's a little girl that is dying. Time is of the essence. And yet he stops. He drops everything. And all that he says is your faith has made you well. Like was that really necessary? Yes. Yes, it was. He only gives 10 words there, but they are a powerful 10 words. First, he calls that woman out of secrecy and into open relationship. And then he speaks warmly and gently to her. He calls her daughter, which is a very endearing term. He tells her that what really made her well was not the touch of his garment, but her faith in God, her trust in God. And then he sends her off with a restored relationship. He says, go in peace. You see, he doesn't want her to just get his power and slink away from him. And so he called her out. The way the Bible talks about knowledge, it's about knowing Jesus. It's about a personal relationship, personal encounters with Jesus. It's not just about knowing what he does. Like, that's important. We need the facts about what Jesus did for us, the facts of what he said, but it's also about that intimate knowledge. And so Peter says, we have all things pertaining to life and godliness, but it's through the knowledge of Jesus. Do you see the doorway? The doorway is knowledge of Jesus. It's when we have that relationship with him, when we know him deeper, when we know what he says, yes, but when we experience that, then we get access to everything pertaining to life and godliness. Jesus says in John 14, I am the way and the truth and the life, the Zoe. No one comes to the Father except through me. That is a door. That's why every other religion has it wrong. They don't have relationship with Jesus. And so they can't enter through it. Doorway number one, you, you walk through it you embrace Jesus on his terms, based on who he says he is and who he says we are, then his power grants you access to all things pertaining to life and godliness, the good stuff. But that's just the first doorway. He's gonna give us another doorway to walk through too. 
And it starts with who God is. We've been granted all things that pertain to life and godliness. That's through the knowledge of him. But then it's him who called us to his own glory and excellence. And we see another wire nut. We see two more words that Peter's going to use and he's going to twist together to describe the same thing. Glory and excellence. Glory is probably like one of the hardest words to define in the Bible. I don't know if you've ever had to try to do that, but if you were to tell your friends about God's glory, how would you describe that? Right? It's a heavy word with so many different facets for us to explore. And so I'm not going to get super deep about it, but I'm going to give us a general understanding of it. I need a picture to help understand things. I'm a very visual person. And so I, I like the way that this pastor describes it. This is a seminary professor. This is a pastor, Ray Ortland. He says, what is the glory of the Lord? His glory is the fiery radiance of his very nature. It's his blazing beauty. The glory of the Lord is God himself becoming visible, God bringing his presence down to us, God displaying his beauty before us. Glory as the fiery radiance of his very nature. That helps, right? Like that's a picture. I can cling to that. We've been taking a break from our E2E study for a little bit, but in that study, we were in the book of Exodus, and we're not going to get a chance to get to this uh, part in Exodus, but in Exodus 33, Moses asks to see God's glory. And just listen to how God himself talks about it. Moses said, please show me your glory. And God said, I will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you my name, the Lord, and I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. But... He said, you cannot see my face, for man shall not see me and live. And the Lord said, behold, there's a place by me where you shall stand on the rock, and while my glory passes by, I will put you in a cleft of the rock, and I will cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will take away my hand, and you shall see my back, but my face shall not be seen. One way to understand glory is the fiery radiance of his very nature. And his nature is goodness. It's excellence. Moses says, show me your glory. And God says, I will make all of my goodness pass before you. But I need to cover you so I don't fry you, you know, because I will annihilate you if you look at my face. You, you can't do that. This glory, this excellence, these are being twisted together to describe the same thing. God doesn't show you his glory without his goodness. And you can't see God's goodness without giving him glory. They're twisted. We've been called to this glory. That's what this verse is saying. We've been called to the beauty of who God is. You see, we are made to be drawn to beauty and goodness George Washington's troops, they saw a minuscule reflection of it in their commander. When George Washington revealed that the war cost him his eyesight and some of his age, it showed that their commander was with them and for them. And God shows us infinitely more, doesn't he? Like when he holds up his hands and shows us the marks of crucifixion, he is saying that he is with us, that he is 
for us, that he would die for us, and then he would show that his power is stronger than death itself, that death cannot pin him. You were made to be drawn to that goodness, drawn to that excellence. And he says, it is his goodness and his excellence, the next part of the verse, by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises. Man, the fiery radiance of his nature, that's what is granted us. That is what's bestowed to us, his precious and very great promises. When I'm studying a passage, I sit down first without anything else besides the Bible verses. And I just write down observations, I write down questions, I try to think through myself before I do anything else. And one of my questions was, what promises? Like he uses plural here, not just one promise he's thinking of, but plural promises, and he never says which ones. Is it his promise of the Holy Spirit as our helper? Is it his promise of rest for our souls? Is it his promise of abundant life? His promise that all who come to Jesus will never be cast out. His promise that he is the resurrection and the life and whoever believes in him shall not die. The promise that he is always with us to the end of the age. The promise to satisfy our thirst. The promise that whatever you've had to leave behind or endure for the sake of the gospel, that he will repay 100-fold both now and in the life to come. Is it the promise that he will return and that we will always be with him. I think that last promise would have been especially sweet to Peter, who has lived without Jesus' physical body, his physical friendship for the past 30 years. Those are just a few promises. Those are a small taste from just the Gospels. There are also the promises given throughout the Old Testament, the promises given throughout the New Testament. Like I could spend the rest of our time just listing off promises of God that he's given you and then some. But Pastor Rich, love that guy, he gave me a resource. He pointed it towards me. It's 215 things that are true of me now that I am saved. If you Google that at home, it'll pop up an awesome resource. We have some paper copies if you want to walk away with one. But these are 215 things that are true of you, some being promises, some declarations, but that you can know now. So you're, you're like, man, I'm brand new. I don't know what God's promises towards me are this is a great resource for you. This is a starting point. It's not exhaustive, but it's a way to start to learn the promises that God's given you and things that are true of you as a believer. Man, I love the way Charles Spurgeon puts it. He says, none ever promised as God has done. Kings have promised even to half of their kingdom, but what of that? God promised to give his own son and even his own self to his people, and he did it. Princes draw a line somewhere, but the Lord sets no bounds to the gifts that he ordains for his chosen. None ever promised as God has done. None has ever fulfilled promises the way God has done either. The fact of the matter is, Peter doesn't specify which specific promises he's talking about. And it's because his point is not about the content about the promises, but what these promises do for us. He says, so that through these promises you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. You see, God draws us to his beauty and his excellence. 
He calls us to it, and then he expects us to join. It's through God's promises that we become partakers of the divine nature. Listen, that that doesn't mean that we become God, right? Context clearly shows it's not that we become God. It means we join him. It means that his spirit maybe comes into us. We are made in his image. We were made to partner with God in goodness from the very beginning, but sin corrupted it. Sin short-circuited it. That's what the second half of this verse is saying. It says, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. The verb tense for escape is active, meaning that it is ongoing. We are in the process of escaping corruption. I don't know about you, but that gives me great joy to know that it's a process of escape that sin will still try to cling to me because sin does still cling to me. I do still fall into sin, but we need to throw it off. We need to repent from it. We need to continue our escape from it. Corruption in this context is likely talking about moral decay, and it's where your desire leads you to fall short of God's desire. It's different. Without Jesus, our moral decay will just deepen. The heart of this corruption is competing wills. If you take a look inside, tell me there's not a nagging voice that is trying to steer you towards decay, that whispers to you and tries to seduce you towards selfishness or pride or anger or lust. You see, God has his promises, but so does sin. Sin promises that this mutiny will give you what you want, that gossip will give you self-importance, that anger will give you justice, that lust will give you fulfillment, but it never does, and yet we keep listening to it. Peter says in his first letter, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions, same word there, from the sinful desires of the flesh, which wage war against your soul, which promises are you going to believe? Like these desires, they are still waging war on our soul, and there's only one way to escape. I recently heard a one-sentence summary of the gospel that I really liked, that I'm going to use a lot now. It says, my sin is so bad, it would take God himself to save me. And that's exactly what I have. You see, that's a short, compact way to cling to God's promises. Do you see that second doorway? It's through these promises. Like, that's how we get to the escape of sin. That's how we get to become partakers of the divine nature. Don't believe the promises of sin. They're always opposed to God. They will take you farther than you want to go, and they will keep you longer than you want to stay. Take the escape route. Believe God's promises. Those two doorways. Doorway number one we talked about, and it's his power. His power has granted us everything through Jesus. Doorway number two is his goodness 
His glory, His excellence has granted us His promises, which allow us to be partakers. Doorway number one, that's equipping us. He's given us all things we need to be like Jesus, to enjoy the good life. Door number two, that's putting it to work. That's picking it up and making it a part of you. Knowledge of Jesus, personal relationship with him, that's how we have access to the true things. It's believing his promises and acting on them that we become partakers, though. You see, we were made to be drawn to beauty and goodness, but it's God's beauty and goodness we were made to be drawn to. Door number two is all about becoming partakers of it. Next week, we are going to talk more about what that means, being partakers of his divine nature. But for today, we're going to transition to communion now. And I love communion. And this is just a special time for us to lean into his promises. Like he tells the woman that touched his garments, he says, your faith has made you well. But he tells us the same things. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. And with his wounds, we are healed. That's in Isaiah. That's what we get to proclaim today. Now we have a tradition where we read a passage from 1 Corinthians. This is Paul talking. And he says, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he also took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And if you're a believer, we would invite you to proclaim the Lord's death with us. We have open communion, which just means that if you're from another church, we'd love for you to join us. If you're not a believer, though, and we are so glad that you're here, keep wrestling, keep asking questions, come talk to me afterwards. I would love to tell you more about Jesus, but we'd ask you not to participate in communion because it's not something that you're yet proclaiming. This time is for you, New Hope. And is there some sin that is clinging to you that you need to repent of? Is there a promise of God that you find so sweet that you just want to praise the Lord for? Spend a few minutes of time in personal reflection. And when you're ready, we have four tables up front, two in the back. Come pick up the, both the cups. It's a two-cup system. And walk it back to your seats. And then we're, we're going to walk through the rest together. But this time is for you. If you are physically able, would you stand with me? On the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took the bread and broke it and said, this is my body broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. That same night, he held up the cup and said, this is the cup of the new covenant. This is my blood shed for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Lord, we are so grateful that your nature is goodness that you are drawing us towards your goodness and that it doesn't leave us unaffected, Lord, but that it grows our desire for you. I pray for the people here, the people live streaming, that you would grow our affection for you, Lord. 
that our knowledge of you would deepen in strong and powerful and tangible ways, that we would begin to look more like you, that we would continue to escape the corruption that comes from sinful desires. We are so grateful for your son and the proof that there is nothing that you would withhold to help us. And it's in your son's mighty name that we pray all these things. Amen.